for summer. You go out in the midday, in the mid-afternoon, and you get excited. Like, it's 22 degrees. I can still wear short sleeves in October. This is fantastic. But if you're more of a fall kind of person, an autumn person, you get maybe more excited about the cool mornings and the crisp air. And the challenge is that this week we kind of had both. So it just depended what you wanted to see. If you wanted to see summer, you could see summer. If you wanted to see fall, you could see fall. And that's the thing that happens when we're kind of in a transition between uh, seasons in some way. When one season is finishing and another season is beginning, you have this sense of overlap, this sense that both can happen. Uh, And it's a time when two people can look at the exact same set of circumstances and see two very different things. Author and poet and philosopher Henry David Thoreau once famously discussed this phenomenon, and he said, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. It's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. And this is especially true when seasons are changing. Sometimes seasons change slowly, almost painfully. It's going to be true in our lives. Sometimes if a season is changing slowly, you feel like it's never going to end, and you can't seem to leave it behind. And the one, the season that's coming feels very distant and out of reach. Sometimes seasons change really quickly, almost instantly. When I was growing up uh, up in northern BC, it was not uncommon for us to go from summer to winter in one weekend with a big dump of snow. And then winter was here, and it was here to stay. Until a Chinook wind would blow through, and then we could go from minus 40 to plus 2 in one weekend, and then back down to minus 40. So the seasons could change very, very quickly. And we came to learn that the speed of something's change wasn't an indicator of its permanence in some ways. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we see evidence that sometimes... Some churches take a long time to come to fruition and maturity. And for others, this process happens quickly, almost instantly in some ways. Let me give you an example. If you look in your Bible in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul, maybe one of the most prominent leaders in the early Christian movement in the first century, is on uh, the second missionary journey that he is making. And he passes through an area of Macedonia and goes to the capital city there. And the capital city of that area in the first century was called Thessalonica. And it was a major naval base for the Roman Empire during this era. And so Paul uh, and his companion Silas, they were traveling together, and they were preaching. They began to preach in the synagogue. Uh, For three weeks they went and preached there. And Acts chapter 17, verse 4, says that some of the Jews were persuaded uh, that Jesus was the Messiah and also some God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. So things go quickly, but they do not go smoothly for Paul in this city of Thessalonica. See, what happens is the Jews in Thessalonica, they get jealous. And so they gather together a group of people from uh, the market, and they storm into the house where Paul is staying, and they drag out the owner of the house who's become a Christian named Jason, and they drag him in front of city council, and they say, 
This man, these people that have come, Paul and Silas, have come to stir up dissension and strife in this city, and this guy's a party to it. And so they're not going to catch this Jason guy on bylaw infractions. They actually want him killed on charge of treason. And so this throws the whole city into turmoil. What's happening here? Who are these people? What message did they bring? Why are these people changing their lives so significantly? And so late that night, the believers decide that it's too... Um, intense for Paul and for Silas, and they sneak them out of the city and send them on their way. So three weeks, that's all Paul gets in the city of Thessalonica. Three weeks to start a church. Three weeks of preaching, three weeks of discipleship, and then he's forced to move on. It's likely that he returned at some point, but The origins of the church in Thessalonica were that the whole thing started in just over 21 days. And so in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes back to the church that started in three weeks. And what does he expect to find? Well, it depends what you're looking for. If I was writing, and if I had only been present for three weeks... I would expect to find total chaos. And so I would write a letter that was more like a list of everything that I didn't get an opportunity to tell them while I was there. Make sure you don't forget about this. Oh, and this too. I should have said this, but I didn't have enough time. Don't forget about this, 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 and this. You should be doing this and that. But Paul and Silas and Timothy actually write a letter that has a totally different tone and characteristic to it. They are expecting to find something different. They're expecting to find and see something different in the lives of those who follow Jesus. And so we're going to look into the book of 1 Thessalonians and see what is it that Paul's expecting to find in these lives. So we're launching a new teaching series this morning in the book of 1 Thessalonians called The Shape of the Kingdom. And so each week as we look at a new chapter in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to ask, what are the contours and contents of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. When we pray things like the Lord's Prayer and we say, God, I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done here in my life on earth as it is in heaven. What do we actually mean by that specifically? What are things that we would want to see? What are things that God would want to see? What are the elements of the kingdom of God that we should be seeing and experiencing here and now? So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to find out what it was that Paul and Silas and Timothy expected to find in the lives of those early believers. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. We'll read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. So Paul says, this letter is from Paul and Silas and Timothy. Silas was one of the prophets from the church in Jerusalem who traveled with Paul in his early ministry. He says, we're writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. We always thank God for all of you, and we pray for you constantly. We pray to our God and Father about you, and we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope that you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you. He's chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power, 
for the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way that we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering that it brought to you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. And as a result, you have become an example to all of the believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep telling us and talking to us about the wonderful welcome that you gave us, how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you're looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He's the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Well, if Henry David Thoreau is right, and it's not what you look at, but what you see, what do Paul and Silas and Timothy see here that allows them to write a letter that starts with such an encouraging tone? Well, they're encouraged not just in general terms, but they're encouraged about a specific cluster of things that they see in the lives of the believers in this city. And they not only observed them personally, but they heard other people talking about them. Three qualities that have been shaped in the lives of the Thessalonians, not just by Paul in his brief time with them, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul names these three things, faith, hope, and love. And that sounds familiar because he uses those in many other places in his writings And in fact, faith, hope, and love become a little bit of a shorthand for what Paul expects to find and see in the lives of anyone who names the name of Jesus and who says, I'm a follower of Christ or a Christian. If you read Romans 5 or Galatians 5 or 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, those same three things show up, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And Paul expects that he's going to see these things in the lives of these followers of Jesus because he's looking for them. And you'll see what you're looking for in a lot of areas of your life. For example, if in your marriage, if you're in a relationship, if you want to see the flaws, first of all, your spouse will tell you you should look in the mirror usually. But if you look at your relationship with the lens to find things that are wrong with it and find things that need work, you'll find them. No relationship is perfect. Every person has them. Every relationship has them. Every church has things that are wrong with it and need work. But the challenge becomes, once you've uncovered these flaws, you can begin to see them everywhere. They begin to bleed into every conversation. You begin to be suspicious in your relationship, you know, in your marriage. Maybe Meg's not telling me things here. Maybe, maybe she's trying to cover up something about that issue and that flaw. Maybe I'm the only one who sees it. Maybe it's really horrible and bad, and other people need to be alerted to it in some way. See, I'll find what I'm looking for 
even if it's actually not present. On the flip side of that, if I choose to look at my relationship with Meg or with other people, or you choose to look at a relationship or your relationship with the church from a different vantage point and say, what in this relationship is healthy and is worthy of encouraging, wouldn't you know it, you'll find what you're looking for. See, you and I can choose what areas we want to become experts in. We can become students of other people's weaknesses, or we can become scholars of their strengths, and we will find what it is that we're looking for. That's one reason why last weekend we uh, gave you those giving thanks bookmarks. We wanted to help you go through the course of this week and try to look for places where you could give God thanks. And so we're going to take a few minutes now, and I'm going to come around with a microphone and ask you what that uh, process was like for you. And you can talk about one of two things. You can talk about either the process and say, I got the bookmark, and I started, and it was really hard for me, uh, and that's fine. Or you can, if you wrote things down on that bookmark, Maybe you didn't bring it with you today, but you say, yeah, when I started looking for things, there were one or two things that I saw that I really wanted to give God thanks for. So you can talk about, again, process or specific thing that you actually want to give God thanks for. And if you didn't write it down in your bookmark, you still want to give God thanks for it, that's okay too. Just stick your hand up. I'll come find you. All right? So let's take a few minutes and actually practice that, giving God thanks. I'm super thankful this may actually be the first month in a very long time that I have extra money at the end of the month. Oh, wow. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, that's awesome. We've been praying for you for a long time and for God's provision, so that's great. That's very exciting news. Yeah, something to give God thanks for, for sure. Somebody else, what do you want to give God thanks for? I'm uh, really thankful for God for giving me all, all the opportunities that are going to be coming up in this next year, all the different universities that I'm going to be applying for. All right. And what the future has to hold in store. Cool. Great. That's awesome, Josh. We keep praying for you for that process. Yeah. What else? What are you thankful for? Grace. <coughs> We had lunch with a gentleman this week. He's lost his wife with MS. He had years ago, he lost his daughter with cancer. His one son has always struggled with alcohol. His other son's wife just left him and will not look, uh, let him visit his son, uh, his grandson. And the other one is in jail um, because of drug-related, pain-related drugs that led into uh, big addictions and theft. And they went to, he, on Sunday, he thought, I'm going to teach my son whose, lo- whose wife left him to be thankful in all things. Mm-hmm. And he said the service on Sunday was, in everything gave thanks. And it just so touched me that this gentleman who struggles every day with all these issues could truly give thanks. Yeah, it's a good testimony.
somebody else. What do you want to give God thanks for? just wanted to give thanks that even though I work in a school with small children and I have three small children in school, we've managed to stay healthy despite the <laughs> <one> place. <laughs> that is indeed miraculous. <laughs> That's great. Well, keep working at it. If you need a bookmark to kind of keep you on track, we were doing 21 days of gratitude. And so you just write down each day what it is, uh, something uh, that uh, you want to remember to be thankful for. And then next weekend, next Sunday, and then the Sunday after that as well, we'll make sure that there's time for you uh, to give God thanks publicly uh, in various ways. So thanks to those who did that. Now, this is really what Paul is doing here for the Thessalonian church. He's looking to find areas in their lives that he can say thank you to God for, for God's work in their lives, the things that they're excelling in. Because part of the shape of life in the kingdom is encouragement. And so he wants to encourage them in those three things, faith, hope, and love. So his first area of encouragement to them is around their resilient faith. Remember, Paul's only with them for three weeks. So if, if I was Paul, and I was thinking about these people who had moved from a place of unbelief to trusting in Jesus, and I'd only been able to a disciple or uh, pour into their lives for three weeks, I would be a little nervous if I was Paul to see if anything stuck in their lives. I don't know about you, but I think about, well, what could I change in my life in three weeks? I have a difficulty making even a subtle change to my diet in three weeks or to my exercise plan and having it stick for three weeks. But these people, saving faith, took root in their lives and in their hearts, and it reshaped their lives. And so when Paul writes to them, he sees and encourages this resilient faith that gave them incredible staying power in the midst of persecution and opposition because their faith has actually reshaped their convictions, the way in which they look at and see the world, the things that they hold to be true. I love the way that the message translation puts 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. Paul says, when the message that we preached came to you, it wasn't just words. Something happened in you. The Holy Spirit put steel in your convictions. See, the Thessalonian believers didn't just say to Paul and Timothy and Silas, yeah, yeah, nice preaching, guys. I mentally agree with what it is that you have said to me. No. They said, the reception of the good news of the gospel, I open my life to it, and it's going to come and change my very convictions about the way that the world is and who I am in relationship to God. See, something happens when you say yes to Jesus when you surrender your life to God. And if you've never done that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a few minutes before you leave here today. It's the most important decision that you'll ever make. Something happens when you do that, when you allow God's Spirit into your life. 
to begin to reshape your convictions. And not only that, but it begins to reshape your character as well. Because the church in Thessalonica was birthed in the crucible of suffering. Hard experiences, hard seasons have a way of shaping and refining our character. There's a book that became famous among early Anabaptists as they suffered persecutions and hardship. The book is called The Martyr's Mirror, and it chronicles stories of deep faith and persecution from the time of Christ till about 1660 or so. It's the story of 17 centuries of people whose faith was tested in hard times. And one of the stories is actually about a group of believers in Thessalonica. The story is told that in the 1530s, the Turks and the Turkish empires captured some of the Moravian Anabaptists. They were Hutterites. And they took them as prisoners from Moravia, where they were living, to what's modern-day Greece, which is Thessalonica. And these prisoners were allowed to worship in a local church, and they became acquainted with some of the local believers in Thessalonica. And to their mutual joy, these Anabaptist prisoners and these Thessalonian Christians discovered they had a remarkable kinship of spirit. And this led eventually to a delegation going from Thessalonica back to Moravia for a visit with the Anabaptists there because they recognized each other as brothers and sisters in suffering. And they joyfully shared the Lord's Supper together. And so 1,500 years later, the Anabaptists wrote down that the church of God at Thessalonica had remained unchanged in faith from the time of the apostles. Why? Because of hardships. Their character was shaped and formed by hardship. I like the way that the message translation puts 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6. It says, we learn to receive into our lives trouble with the joy and the joy with the trouble. A mix of character-shaping hardships and faith is not something that the Christian is immune to. And Tyler's going to preach more about this next weekend, Tyler Harper, as we look in chapter 2. So I won't preach his message for him. But Paul expects that when he looks into and writes to them, that he will see resilient faith, even in the midst of hard circumstances. The second thing he sees or expects to find is their faith not just talked about, but their faith lived out. And so he expects to see not only resilient faith, but loving deeds. One of the things that Paul is most proud about, about this church in Thessalonica, is not just their piety, but their activity. They practice radical hospitality. They care for people, not only Paul and Silas, but each other and those around them. And this was modeled for them by Paul and Silas. Notice how Paul talks about his own life in chapter 1. He talks about how his life and his actions were on display for them, not just his theology. One commentator notes that the integrity for Paul of the proclaimed word is always linked to the lifestyle of the messengers. The authenticity of the Christian message has to be corroborated by the behavior of 
the messengers. And the same is true for you and me. We are called not only to tell the world about Christ's love, we also have to show them. Our spoken words and our lived witness must complement one another. Living words must always be accompanied by loving deeds. See, this, friends, is why we do things like the House of Hope service project on Saturday. Because we can sit around in rows for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning and talk about God's love all we want. But we actually have to show it. We actually have to put our convictions into action in some demonstrable way. Let's not just talk about how much we love people around us in our neighborhoods. Let's demonstrate that in practical ways, acts of service and generosity. Let's just not talk about how we want to have an authentic and loving community here at Jericho. Let's put that into practice and demonstrate it in amazing and practical and sacrificial ways. See, we can talk about how much we love the people of the world. We can sing about God's love for the world all we want. But until we actually begin to put it into play and take concrete steps in whatever way God calls you and I to, to love the people of Guatemala or Tanzania or Papua New Guinea, then it's just talk. Our words need to be accompanied by our actions. And also, vice versa. Because sometimes we tell ourselves, well, actions speak louder than words. And for some of us, we actually fall into the opposite trap. That we don't Um, not that we don't do loving deeds, but that we actually only do loving deeds and we never connect those to our witness in any way. And so a question I have for you is, do you feel yourself pulled towards one expression more than the other? Do you feel that in your life that there's a sense of kind of imbalance towards one of those extremes? Just wanting to demonstrate Christ's love but never talk about it, or just always wanting to talk about Christ's love but never actually demonstrate it. Both are obviously artificial. I find for myself sometimes in our neighborhood, I think to myself, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live like a, a Christian here, and I'm going to be a good neighbor, and people will fill in the blanks. They'll figure it out. They'll know I'm a Christian uh, they'll figure out, you know, or I'll talk, talk to them, you know, that I'm a pastor. They'll figure it out. But Paul says to the Thessalonians, not only did their deeds demonstrate that, but the word of the Lord, verse 8, rang out from them to people around them. And what rang out was not only their deeds, but also their words and their faith. The word is ringing out through action and through declaration, Paul says. People are hearing about the good news through their actions, and their actions are giving them opportunities to bear witness to the saving work and love of God in their lives. It's kind of like if you were to take an instrument that's like really a reverberating instrument, like a trumpet, and you were to go out into the arena bowl or out into the stairwells and blow it really loud and sound a really big note and then just kind of wait, it'll actually reverberate 
throughout the whole facility. Like when the horn sounds outside and we're in here, you can hear it because it just kind of resonates throughout the whole building. And Paul's saying that same kind of thing. When your words and your deeds work together, it's a powerful resonating message that just reverberates throughout the places that you go and that God has put you into. In the school classroom where you find yourself as a student, in the shop where you work, where other people are not people of faith, you have opportunity to bear witness to Christ's love in different ways and in creative ways. So how about you in your life? Your life is trumpeting a message, but how clear is that message? And what is it saying and how is it being understood? Your life is trumpeting a message, how clear is it? What's being said and what's being understood? As Paul concludes his chapter to them, and I encouraging them not only about their resilient faith, not only about their loving deeds, but also about their enduring hope. And see, sometimes when we talk about hope, we think about it as a fuzzy or nebulous concept that's just kind of out there somewhere. But for Paul, hope is a very grounded, very specific concept. It's a concept that has enduring resonance to it and depth and teeth. It's a grounded concept for Paul. It's very rooted. Look at verse 9 and verse 10. Paul talks about an eternal hope, an enduring hope that they have, being a combination of two postures that they've taken in their lives. The first posture that they've taken is that they have turned from something. And he names some specific things that they have turned from in their lives. Paul says, you didn't just welcome me, you didn't just welcome Jesus, and add it into the already cozy aspects of your life. He says, you are actually making choices in your life around your values and around the very core things about how you thought that were idolatrous, that had set something else other than God in the core place of your pursuit of your life. He says, you didn't just sort of hear the message of Jesus and go, that's interesting, I'm going to add that in to what I think about my life and just make it yet another element of all the things that I do. Paul says, no, you actually turned from idolatry. You turned from worshiping and giving yourself to those things and you actually then repented and actually turned from and repented from idolatry, from self-centeredness. And sometimes we think about this turning as a one-time event in a salvific sense. But for Paul, this is a continuous and ongoing movement in our hearts. Repentance and turning from things that get in the way of a walk with God is an ongoing experience, a daily or sometimes multiple times during the day event for me and for you. I like the way that Jared Crosley put it on our prayer night on Thursday. He said, I just find I'm always repenting in some way in my life. And he didn't say it as a discouraging kind of, woe is me, I just have to drag myself through another thing of thinking how horrible I am as a person and what might I need to repent of. No, he said, 
Actually, I'm encouraged by the fact that God's kindness continues to draw me to repentance in different areas in my life. There's always something for us to turn from. And so for you, what is it that you need to turn from today? Maybe today for you is a day where you need to turn from bitterness in your heart that you've harbored towards another person or unforgiveness. Maybe today is a day when you say, I need to turn away from anger. Maybe you need to turn away from fear ruling your life when you think about the future. Maybe you need to turn away from self-sufficiency and pride. Maybe you need to turn away from sexual sin. If you've never made a turn of repentance in your life, maybe today is the day when you do that for the very first time, where you say yes to Jesus, to embrace the life and the forgiveness that he offered. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 is clear on how this occurs. You, put, you do that by putting your full trust and confidence in Jesus, whom God has raised from the dead and rescued you from the penalty of sin and the penalty of judgment. And friends, that's a really big deal. Forgiveness, when it's offered by God's grace and through his love and through his mercy, through what Jesus has done, is an incredible, incredible thing to receive. And it's worth turning from anything that might block you in pride from doing that. And so if you need to do that today, then I want you to come and pray with me before you leave today. And we'll explore how God can offer you forgiveness and freedom. Because repentance, that turning from, is the first part. But Paul says you also actually turned not just away from things, because the Christian movement throughout history has been pretty good about telling people what they should turn away from. But Paul also says, you know what? You also turn towards things, and you embrace other things. And he mentions a few of them. He says you turn towards things like thanksgiving. You turn towards things like continuing in prayer for others. You turn towards things like embracing a sincere concern for the well-being of others. You turn toward things like serving others as an expression of love for God. You turn towards things like faith in Jesus, in his resurrection, and in his return. Because, friends, the hope and the encouragement that we have in Jesus and in Jesus' return as Paul mentions at the end of chapter 1, really is going to form the center point of the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's what life in the kingdom really centers around for Paul. It's about living our lives right now in light of the reality of Jesus' resurrection and his return. And it's very hard work. It's hard to do because it's very easy for us to focus on negative things or the challenges of life in here and now. On Thursday morning, I was out for an early morning run. And it was early, it's fall, and it might be 22 degrees in the afternoon, but uh, at 6 a.m. it's cold and the stars are out or were out on Thursday morning brilliantly. 
And so I'm running and I'm pounding the pavement and I'm thinking about some of the challenges in my own life and our family. I'm thinking about some of the challenges at Jericho. I'm thinking about some of the other things that we're involved with and thinking about the challenges of this and that. And as the more I think about these things, the more I get discouraged. And I can actually feel myself as I start to run, I get my angry feet on. And my angry feet are where I just start to stomp and plod a little bit more, and my head gets down a little bit more, and I'm starting to think, man, this is just ridiculous, you know, all of these things. I can't believe this. I can't believe that. And I'm getting a little bit more upset about all of these things as I run. And as I was running and beginning to get discouraged, I felt like God said to me, hey, Brad, um, do you just want to look up for a minute? And so I paused and I looked up, and above me was a brilliant, cloudless night sky. Just a, one of those perfect night skies that I was running out in an area where there wasn't many lights. And so you could just see stars upon stars upon stars. I mean, this is a photo of the stars over Galliano Island because when I Googled stars over Willoughby, there weren't any pictures. But as I looked up, I was just struck by the stars again and the incredible majesty and beauty of creation. And it was like God was just pouring into my heart again just the perspective on all the things that I had just been griping about and my concerns. And it was as if God was saying to me, hey, Brad, why don't you just pause for just a minute here? You can keep running if you want, but try not to trip over anything. Keep, just look up. Like, I want you to actually see all of the wonders that I have made. And then I want you to ask the question, do you think I can't handle any of those concerns that you've just been on and on and on about? Like the biggest challenge that you could think of, Brad, dwarfs in comparison to the challenge of sustaining just one of those stars. Creating Orion's belt, keeping the planets in their orbit. Brad, I do these things effortlessly because of my almighty power. Your circumstances, your challenges, I've got that one too. And I was reminded in that moment yet again that it's really not what you look at that matters. It's what you see. See, growing up in the small northern town of Dawson Creek, one of the signs that spring was on its way was the appearance of a crocus flower. See, these little flowers, crocuses, are incredibly resilient. I remember not far from our house, there was a whole hillside that would just be filled with them when we would come to the end of winter and the beginning of spring. These little purple and yellow bulbs that poke their way up through the still cold earth. But see, the challenge for the crocus in northern climates is that it comes up quite often before spring is fully here yet. Before the season has changed from winter to spring. And I can remember times when the crocuses would be up and even fully in bloom and they would be covered by a blanket of snow. And they may look delicate, but those little crocus flowers are actually incredibly resilient. They're tough little buggers. See, they can live in a time between the seasons, even when that transition takes longer than you or I might expect. And in that way, the crocus forms a beautiful and powerful picture of the shape of life in the kingdom. I love how South African missiologist David Bosch puts this truth. He says this, 
We live within the creative tension between the already and the not yet. We are forever moving closer to the orbit of the former. We Christians are anachronism in the world. We are not anymore what we used to be, but we are not yet what we are destined to be. It's like we're too early for heaven, yet too late for the world. We're too early for spring, but too late for winter. We live on the borderline between the already and the not yet. We are a fragment of the world to come. We are God's colony in a human world, his experimental garden on earth. We are like crocuses in the snow. We're a sign of the world to come, and at the same time, we're a guarantee of its coming. See, friends, this is the glorious hope to which you and I have been called. It's the hope that we hold out to a world so desperately in need of love and redemption, not only in words, but also through our actions. See, we are to live as people of hope who experience in the midst of our troubles the sense that God is with us, grounded in the knowledge that the God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, who hung the stars in the place, has the ability to rescue and redeem us and our circumstances, to walk with us in our darkest valleys. It's his job. And it's our job then to model that for those around us, not to force the change of seasons. It's simply to be a crocus in the snow, to live and speak in a way that our lives become a foretaste or a signpost of a guarantee of what is coming. So as Jared and the team come, they're going to lead us in three songs of response that speak to stirring this kind of faith in our hearts and in our lives. And this morning, our prayer team, uh, Deb Jarvis and Anne-Marie and myself, are available and excited for you to come. It's our privilege to stand with you and pray for you. And if you have something in your life where you say, I just need someone to stand with me and pray for hope, we would be privileged to do that. There's no need to wear a mask. There's no need to pretend. We would love to be a part of your journey together. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for the hope that you offer to us in Jesus. We thank you that we can live as people of hope. We can live as people of love. We can live as people of faith only because and by your grace and by your strengthening power. And so we don't pretend to do that in our own strength. We don't want to do that in our own strength. We want to do that in full obedience and submission to you, to live as people of hope. And so, Father, we pray that you would gift us with strength in this place today. There's so many areas of our lives that need your touch. For some of us, we need uh, to repent. For some of us, we need to uh, sit in silence and invite you to speak yet again into those places of our life where we feel that we've lost hope. For some of us, we need to make a movement of repentance for the very first time. And so, God, we invite you by your Spirit to speak to each and every one of us in this place today, that you would carry us to that place of recognizing and affirming where it is that your hope is at work in our world and in our lives. 
by the power and the mighty name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.